Welcome to Passive Real Estate Investing, the show where busy people like you learn how to build substantial passive income while creating wealth for the long term. And now, here's your host, Marco Santarelli. Hello, my friends, and welcome to another episode of Passive Real Estate Investing. I'm your host, Marco Santarelli. It is great having you back. Well, I hope you've been having a great 2022 so far. Uh, it seems like the last month and holiday passed by very, very quickly. Maybe it's because we are just all so busy running around in so many different directions. I don't know about you, but it just seems to me that lately we've been having so much more media attention to debt, specifically to federal and government debt and inflation. And, you know, Milton Friedman once said that inflation is taxation without legislation. And I also like something that Kevin Brady had once said, and he said, inflation destroys savings, impedes planning, and discourages investment. That means less productivity and a lower standard of living, and that couldn't be closer to the truth. So, you know, I guess because of just the, the amount of inflation we've been seeing, price appreciation and inflation over the last 18 months or more, here at Norada Real Estate Investments, the company that I run here for real estate investors, we've seen an uptick in investor inquiries for investment real estate. So, you know, I think to a large degree, that's probably because there's more of a flight to safety, safety in the sense that real estate is a true hard asset. It is a natural hedge against inflation. But I think there's also maybe some increasing stock market concerns because it actually has been more volatile in the last three to six months. And I think some investors are getting a little nervous and being shaken out of the stock market and they're moving some of their capital or maybe all of it, you know, towards hard assets like real estate, which is a natural inflation hedge, an asset that produces income, also allows you to gain equity through appreciation and amortization of your mortgage loan, which of course we outsource to our tenants. We don't pay that ourselves. Our tenants pay off our mortgages for us. So real estate is a fantastic investment. It's the most historically proven asset class, and it's a great way to deal with rising debts and inflation. Moving forward, you know, we were drowning in record levels of debt before COVID-19 came along as a crisis, and we are now deluged in it. The U.S. private sector loans have tripled relative to income since the 1950s, and government debt is also at an all-time high. These soaring debts burden most individuals, and it stifles growth, it compounds inequality in this country, and it brings falling living standards for millions of Americans. Unless, of course, you're on the right side of that debt equation, which usually involves assets that you can acquire and leverage using debt to uh, benefit you. And we'll talk about that, of course. I've mentioned it many, many times uh, over the years on the show as well, how you could use debt as a very powerful tool to accelerate your wealth creation. My guest today, who is Richard Vague, argues that contrary to mainstream assumptions, we cannot simply hope that the trend will correct itself. Mounting debt is a feature of our economic system, he argues, and it's not a bug. So debts perpetually grow and compound, and that polarizes and impoverishes countries and economies if it's not dealt with. And so that seems to be one of the key questions. You know, how do we deal with it? Or do we just ignore it and leave it alone? Because as he argues, it's not a bug. It's just a feature of our current economic system. So with that, let's get to our guest and explore this 
mind-bending new perspective on debt and inflation. It is my pleasure and honor to introduce Richard Vague to the show. Richard is an American businessman. He's a venture capitalist, an author, and the acting secretary of banking and securities for the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. Also, he is the former managing partner of Gabriel Investments, the chair of the Governor's Woods Foundation, co-founder, chairman and CEO of Energy Plus, and he has so many other credentials to his name. As the best-selling author of A Brief History of Doom and The Next Economic Disaster, Richard has established himself as a clear and independent voice in the ongoing conversation about the role of private sector debt in the global economy. He is also the author of An Illustrated Business History of the United States and his most recent book, The Case for a Debt Jubilee, which we'll dive into today, is a fascinating book that has really got me to pause and rethink how I think about private and public debt. So with that, Richard, welcome to the show. It's a real privilege to be here. Thank you very much. Well, I am honored to have you here, especially after an interview I did this week with an Austrian school expert and talking about debt and inflation and how all that plays together. So I think we're going to have a very interesting conversation today. Let's begin before we dive into the case for a debt jubilee. I literally just ordered one of your newer books, The Illustrated History of the United States. I'm pretty excited to receive it because it's, it's, it's a beautifully done book. But looking back at the last 250 years of wealth creation in the U.S., what inspired you to write this book? Maybe take a few minutes to tell us about this book. Thank you so much. We, we did a book a few years ago that was a review of all the financial crises over the last couple of hundred years in the six largest economies in the world. And we found, uh, to our surprise, that if you got into the early 1800s especially, but even as late as uh, the early 1900s, there was lot, it was not as much business data available as we expected. It was hard to reconstruct some of this. Now we managed to uh, pull that together, but it was with a considerable amount of work. And it led me to think, you know, my goodness, nothing much has been written about the early business history of the United States, you know, much less kind of a comprehensive overview of business history of the United States. And surely, Business history is important to consider as other areas. So we just, you know, coming out of that book, we just committed to ourselves that we were going to give it a shot. Brilliant. Well, my book should arrive tomorrow, so I'm pretty excited to receive it. It'll be a great, fun read, I think. Thank you. And thanks for doing it, by the way. It's definitely a missing book in um, many people's libraries. So I've had a really hard time wrapping my head against your case in the book, The Case for a Debt Jubilee. Maybe the best place to start is what we'll just simply call a theory, the modern monetary theory. The whole central idea of MMT is that governments, you know, that control a fiat currency system can control the money supply and that they can and should create money or as much as they possibly can to meet the needs, if that's even a real word here, the needs of currency in the system that they need to fund whatever programs they are funding as well as to keep the economy moving forward. And I just have a hard time grasping that. First of all, does MMT actually work and does it even work in the long term? Because I always go to the thinking that this is very inflationary. Well, you've asked a lot of questions all bundled into one. So, sorry, you know, I, we, we might need to discuss this for a moment. But I think MMT 
there are certainly things about it, the the literature being produced by the MMT proponents that I don't agree with, but I think there's a lot there that is uh, valid. And I think one of the things that's valid about it and actually very helpful is they bring economic analysis back to accounting. They bring it back to the balance sheet, just like you would analyze a, an individual's balance sheet or a business's balance sheet. They look at the country's balance sheet. And I think that's very, very healthy. I think a lot of economic analysis is guys think they're actually physicists. And, <laughs> and the thing that really keeps you honest when you do economic analysis is having to balance the debits and credits. So that's much to their credit. Now, what they also say is the any sovereign economy can't run out of money because of various things. And when you get into it, when you really dig into it, that's actually true. So for example, if the government incurs more debt, they sell securities to do that, which extracts deposits out of the economy. Let's say it's a million dollars, but they borrow to spend. So they turn right around and replenish deposits in the system. So the net entry to private sector deposits from a government debt sale is neutral. And folks really don't think about that. So, you know, and, and you know, we could elaborate on that discussion a little bit, but it, it's genuinely the case. So then you say, well, does that create inflation? And uh, MMT guys seem to put forward an answer to that that says, yes, if you read Randall Ray's textbook, he doesn't deny that. And in fact, he says the limitation on the amount of debt that can be issued is inflation. So they'll say you can, you know, when the economy's slack, you should incur government spending to kind of push the economy back forward. But once you start experiencing inflation, that's when you should throttle back the amount of deficit spending or, or GDP. So, you know, there's, there's an element of realism to that. I, I think there's a couple of problems with that analysis. But, you know, when you read their books, literally, they're kind of separated into two things. One is a technical analysis of how monetary systems operate. And the second is kind of a wish list about if we do spend deficit money, what should we spend it on? And that's where they kind of get into certain policies like uh, basic income and things like that, which, uh, you know, I think are at least worth considering. But um, I'll say one more thing and then I'll shut up about this. No, you're fine. This is great. It's a lot and, to unpack And that there. is that if you really analyze it carefully and you look at the four major monetary systems in the world, which is the United States, China, Japan, and Europe. And I think of Europe kind of as a whole. And you look at every bit of monetary history since 1945, which is kind of a line of demarcation to the present, what you would conclude, and you can, and you can do this at home, you don't have to be an economist, this data is easy to find, that the growth in debt and the growth in money supply is actually inversely correlated to interest rates and inflation. Kind of the point of inflection, there was kind of a debt, total debt and the economy in any of these four areas was pretty flat up until circa 1980. And since 1980 to the present, debt has exploded, private and public debt, and inflation and interest rates have gone down. 
So if you're an empiricist and you were honest in your analysis, you would actually conclude that more debt means less inflation and lower interest rates. And frankly, that's kind of where I am. So that's the part that kind of flies in the face of what we often hear and that we've had our mind wrapped around for so long. And what you hear, you know, all the talking heads talk about is that if the monetary policy is to put more money into the system, quote unquote, that leads ultimately, maybe not right away, but as it trickles through the system and works its way to corporations, people and citizens, that that creates inflation, maybe because it's creating more liquidity in the economy for people to spend, which is, you know, where consumers help to drive the economy. But to me, that's inflationary. And you're saying that there is no correlation or an inverse correlation to that. This is the part that I have a hard time wrapping my head you around. Know, it's an easy proposition to test. We have relatively comprehensive data on 47 of the largest 50 economies in the world. Wow. Together constitute you know, let's call it 90% of global GDP. I mean, it's it's the world. We have all their data. I mean, there's so three countries that are excluded because we don't have sufficiently complete data. You can go forward and pick any definition you want for high money supply growth or high debt growth and go through each of those countries and see whether those periods were followed by high inflation or were not high inflation. That's a pretty straightforward analysis to do. And we've done that analysis. And the correlation is not compelling. So is that coincidence or is that showing causation? I think it's showing a lack of causation. And we've, we've studied this pretty hard. I think, you know, I think there's a generation of economists that came up during the very painful years of late 1973 to 1982. And, you know, they became convinced and it was espoused by, you know, superstar economists Milton Friedman and others, and it was certainly used by um, Paul Volcker, that the reason that inflation was high, and it peaked at 13.5%, but the reason it was high was because of high money supply growth. Go examine that period carefully. The thing that was really going on in that period was the acceleration of petroleum prices. Petroleum mm -hmm. prices in, you know, I think it was September of 1973, went from $3 to $10 a barrel in the Yom Kippur War. And then just a few years later, in 1978, 1979, it went from $10 to $39 a barrel. <laughs> and that's what brought inflation. And you can observe that correlation almost month by month. Inflation does not really go up in any profound way until oil prices go up. And then what happened? Well. Carter first in a timid way, and then Ronald Reagan in his typically bold way, deregulated domestic oil prices, which Richard Nixon had capped in 1971. Capped it at $3 a barrel. It was a fairly uncontroversial move at that time because oil had been you know, $3 a barrel or lower for you know, 20 years. What happened when Reagan deregulated oil? And it was just domestically. Production exploded. Everybody was drilling for oil ever. I was living in Texas at the time. I guarantee you it was a boom. And as soon as, you know, production doubled and quadrupled and so forth, what happened? Well, obviously prices collapsed. And so, you know, the prices headed down. In 1982, the price had gone down from $39 a barrel to 28. And by the time you got to 1986, it was down to $10 or $11 a barrel. And in fact, right. just followed that curve just 
you know, almost year by year. And, 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 and the truth is, money supply growth was still high in 1986, and inflation was only 2%. So it's really hard, I think, once you get into the actual data to build a compelling case for that linkage. So for the 80s, it almost sounds like the deregulation improved production, which improved or increased supply, which drove prices down, which allowed consumers after the fact to buy more, purchase more, and take advantage of that increased supply. Okay, I get that. I understand that. Now, how would you explain the inflation that we saw in the 60s and 70s then? Okay, so inflation in 1972 is 3%. Okay. So, you know, the very mild, there've only been eight episodes of what I would call high inflation in the entire U.S. history from 1800 to the present. Only eight. Okay. Four of those were linked to war, which you would expect, right? You know, uh, production is decimated in war. And the only two recent ones were a brief period of what I would consider mild inflation. It only got up to 5.7% in 1969-70 then was back down to reasonable levels in 72. And then it came back up in 73 with the Yom Kippur War. So what happened in the 60s was we were trying to defend the gold standard. Right. The gold in the United States in the 30s, when we, you know, delinked from gold, gold just flowed into the United States. And we ended up with 20,000 metric tons of gold in the United States, circa, let's say, the mid-1930s. Then we put Bretton Woods into place in the 1940s, and the gold supply was maintained by that Bretton Woods agreement at that $35. But as early as the mid-1950s, the dollar was starting to weaken against this artificial $35 level. Right. So folks started showing up at the Fed, exchanging their dollars for gold for 35 bucks an ounce and selling them on the rest of the world's markets for 40, 50, 60, you know, I think in India for a period of time, gold was selling like for like 70, $80 an ounce. And, you know, who wouldn't? So the United States from 1960 to 1970, the supply of gold at the Fed goes from 20,000 metric tons to 10,000 metric tons. Wow. It's a lot. And then, you know, we actually raised rates to try to defend the strength of the dollar in 1961, 62, 63. You, you go look at, in the records, they were all were already worried about the departure of gold and trying to defend it. Inflation didn't raise its little head until 1966. And then just, like I said, only got up to about 5.7 and then came right back down when Nixon took us off the gold standard in 71. So to me, there were other factors at play, certainly. But the main thing was us trying to defend an artificial price for the dollar and uh, kind of getting caught. So kind of a curiosity and personal question. I'm just curious, do you fall more in the Keynesian school of economics or the Austrian school of economics? I'm just wondering if you have a uh, political or economic alignment to any of those schools of thought? You know, I'm not closely aligned with either one. Uh, you know, I certainly have respect for a lot of folks in both camps. I do think there's room for deficit spending. You know, we've obviously seen that. But I think there's a limitation on growing government debt. And it's 
This will be a surprise, I think, to most folks. But if you are an empiricist and you go look at it, yep. the thing that correlates with higher government debt is two things. One of them is lower interest rates, which is actually adverse for the economy at a certain point. You know, it creates asset bubbles. It hurts pensioners and the like. So, you know, it's not all a bed of roses to have declining interest rates. The second thing that rising government debt does surprisingly is increase and exacerbate inequality. Right. Yeah. I mean, it guts the middle class, does it not? Absolutely. So I don't have this belief that you can uh, increase government debt in an unlimited fashion, as some folks do. But I think a certain amount of it, particularly if that it stays pretty much in line as a percent of GDP, is appropriate. Okay. So... If you were to look at, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, this almost sounds like creditism, where we need to drive the economy based on consumers, not on producers, which is moves away from the Austrian school's thinking. And if that's true, is there a way to explain inflation as we've seen it, or the lack thereof, through the lens of capitalism versus creditism? Because these seem to be opposing forces the way you're describing it. So if you take all developed economies, you know, Western Europe and the United States, as I said earlier, you don't really have a lot of inflation. And you certainly don't have the high double digit or triple digit inflation you do in less developed countries. Okay. You know, I, th I think the, the highest inflation the U.S. ever had was towards the end of the Civil War, where it jumped in one year, 30, 34%, I think was the cap. Aside from that, it's rare to have inflation more than, you know, kind of 10, 12% ever. And it's limited to just a very few years. And that's really true across the developed economies. But you do have it in, you know, Mexico and Argentina and Zimbabwe and and I think there's an important difference that I can't find folks anywhere that have really focused on. And that is, there's a difference between issuing debt, which has a maturity and has an interest rate, and thus has kind of a built-in accountability mechanism, if you will, and actually printing money. Now, everybody uses the term printing money, but we are, what we're doing is not printing money, you know? Printing money is like what they did to finance the American Revolution. They printed pieces of paper, and those <laughs> pieces of paper were, you know, doing payable by the flimsy government. There was uh, that was what we did in the Confederate, the Confederacy did in the Civil War. Sure. Other, the other thing that's notable is, and this is hard to reconstruct. We spent a lot of time on this, and it's uh, and this is true of Zimbabwe and it's true of Weimar Germany. The amount of currency, currency that was printed was like 50 or 75 or 100% of GDP for years to get to that point. And to me, that's genuinely inflationary. It's not debt. In fact, even in the American Revolution, the first bank ever chartered in the United States of America, which is called the Bank of North America, chartered in 1781, you know, almost concurrent with the Yorktown battle, was to shift from printing money to supplying the supplies for the American Revolution through bank debt. 
So again, this difference between printing pieces of paper and issuing debt, we see in the past, we won't really do that today. So, but third world countries often do. They will just print money and pay folks with it. So I see the very high inflation and the hyperinflation being linked to that phenomenon. Printing paper in amount that is not five or 10% of GDP, but 50 or 100% of GDP, which would mean in our case, in a single year, if we were going to try to draw a parallel to Weimar, that our GDP is 21 trillion. So that would mean we're printing 10, 15, $20 trillion in currency a year for a couple of years. I guarantee you that's going to create inflation. But that's not within a hundred miles of what we're actually doing, which is printing debt of a couple of trillion a year. So well, okay, so that's a perfect segue to what I was thinking about what is going on today. How do you explain what has happened over the last, let's say, 18 months or so, where we've increased, you know, the Fed's balance sheet from about $4 trillion to about $8 trillion. I mean, we've effectively created 40, I've seen different numbers, 25 to 40% more currency in the U.S. economy from the beginning of time for the U.S. dollar. We are seeing inflation virtually everywhere, especially in healthcare, insurance, education, but we're seeing it in food and energy and, I mean, you name it. So to me, this is almost like a chicken and egg thing, but how do you explain the last 18 months? So let's get back to what I was saying earlier, that there have been eight episodes of inflation in the United States. And we've talked about the, the last two, but we haven't talked about the first six. Four of those six were the War of 1812, the Civil War, World War I, and World War II. And just like clockwork, when you have a massive war, what you've done is you've removed a tremendous amount of the productive capacity within that economy. So Europe at World War I, you know, all the farms of Europe are turned into battlefields. The United States ends up exporting 20, 30% more wheat and corn from our own farms just to keep the folks from Europe from starving. So there's a decimation of the supplies in each of those wars. And, and by the way, there's actually a boost in demand too. If you actually look at the data, the war spending kicks demand up a little bit, but more importantly, it damages supply production you know, by 20, 30, 40, 50%. And in each of those periods, you have three plus or minus years of high inflation. And then it ended almost instantly. You know, the soldiers return from the army to factories and farms. Uh, supply chains are untangled. In World War II, you know, uh, factories that are building tanks are converted back to building cars. As the supply chain is resuscitated and restored, inflation disappears, not in a matter of years, but in a matter of months. I view our current situation as being most closely comparable to those what I call supply depletion periods of inflation. So if I was to paraphrase what you just said and interpret it my way, it sounds like the massive inflation that we've seen over the last 12 to 18 months or so has been driven not because of the trillions of dollars that have been printed or created by the Fed and put on the balance sheet, but it's because of disruption in production, which reduced supply. Meanwhile, demand for that 
supply of goods and services didn't change. If anything, it maybe has increased because we were getting stimulus checks, PPP loans, credit is still cheap. So we're still depositing monies and creating currency from bank loans that are just creating dollars out of you know thin air, putting it into existence. So the demand side was the same or increasing. Supply side was diminishing. And that imbalance, which is just economics 101, has pushed prices or what we call price inflation. Is that a fair it, assessment it, and summary? Exactly, exactly. And by the way, you, you'll note, we 2020 was actually a period of very low inflation. So if you do a two-year look at inflation, you know, the number yesterday was 12 or 7%, right? If you did a two-year, so if you compared December of 21 to December of 19, over that two-year period, inflation was only up 8.2% which means 4.1% a year. So, you know, our inflation is, is um, high, it's hurting people, but compared to war-based inflation in prior periods, which typically was 10 or 15%, we're still a little below that. So everything we've talked about makes sense. It's pretty clear, but it's not something that you hear very often or even talk about. Why are the talking heads in the mainstream media and maybe even politicians not talking about what we just talked about here in terms of what is creating inflation and everybody's so hyper-focused on, you know, the quote-unquote printing of money and the trillions of dollars being put on the balance sheet. You know, it's just an, an interesting thing. And, and I came up in the 70s or 80s myself. You know, one of my very first jobs was running a Fed funds desk in 1979 when Fed funds got up to 20%, you know, it was just, it was, it was just mind blowing. That experience is seared into the consciousness of the folks that are the leading, the generation of leading economists out there. And so, you know, I, you know, I think that has really colored everything since that period. And, you know, I marvel people that don't know anything else, you know, the man on the street, who right. doesn't know anything else about economics, knows for sure that money supply growth or government debt growth caused inflation. So it's one of those beliefs that just became pervasive. And I think if you're an empiricist and you go back and you really study things, it's not nearly as convincing a thing. So are you saying this is just a lack of education and some level of ignorance? Is that all it is? Uh, you know, I hate to put it in that kind of a term, but I, I think, yeah, I mean, uh, I think I've seen lots and lots of inflation studies. I've been pondering this for several years. They'll do this massive research paper on inflation and the entire spectrum of what they're studying is the United States in the 1970s. There's 47 other countries with a lot of data that you could look at, but no, it's um, what would you call it? Uh, you know, too narrow of a scope of analysis. Right. Myopia well, perhaps. Yeah. Well, I mean, I don't say ignorance in a negative light. I mean, this podcast and this show and everything we do, you know, in my companies is all about educating people on financial literacy and financial education. And so when I talk about ignorance, I refer to ignorance as being expensive. I mean, people think ignorance is bliss, but the reality is ignorance is expensive because you need to educate yourself, especially financially. And what you don't know is actually costing you opportunity, time and whatnot. You know, I'd love everybody to pick up a copy of your book. I think it's a great read. So, you know, a few questions here as we wind things down. Your book is about consumer debt forgiveness. 
for the most part, I would assume. Yep. And you make a compelling case. So kind of a two-part question. Like, what is the case for a debt jubilee? Because that's essentially what you're talking about. Well, let's start there before I ask you part two. Well, something that I stumbled across maybe 10 years ago now is the fact that debt, total debt, which is public and private, as a percent of GDP, and GDP is a proxy for income. So the debt to income ratio of every country in the world, basically, certainly every large country, always goes up. And that was an astonishing thing to me. I can remember when we first pulled the data together, which we did back in those days, there wasn't an OEC database and some other things. We had to make a big effort to pull this together. And when I saw the fact that for all the major economic regions of the world, the ratio of total debt to GDP always grew, except for periods of intense calamity. So that ratio actually improved during the Great Depression. That contraction, by the way, caused a lot of misery. But you know, go, we can go back as far as we want. In the case of the United States, we can reconstruct that pretty well all the way back to the early 1800s. But I, we can push it back pretty far in a lot of economies. It always goes up. Well, if you were talking about an individual and their debt to income ratio always went up, or if you're talking about a company and their debt to income ratio always went up, we would know without having to do a lot of analysis that there was trouble ahead. Right. Bankruptcy. Well, all the nation's aggregate debt is, is the sum of all the household and corporate debt in that country. And so what I'm, my conclusion is that over indebtedness is built into economies. And that leads you to the question, what should we do about it? And, you know, the book goes into great detail about this. You've got to deleverage, but the conventional mechanisms of deleveraging inflation growth actually don't work. We can't find examples of them. One of my chapters goes into great detail about this. Uh, so, you know, kind of the flippant remark that a politician or economist might make that says, oh, we'll just outgrow it. You can't outgrow debt because it takes debt to grow. And so, you know, by process of elimination, all you're left with is some kind of debt uh, amnesty, some process for uh, expedient dealing with debt that can't be paid. Bankruptcy laws are a form of debt amnesty. It's a difficult form. But you have, you know, student debt's gone from 500 million to trillion eight in just a few years is one example. So our book posits, uh, you know, a way for young adults to accelerate the relief from student debt through community service. You know, that's, that's I, I'm not making the same recommendation that Bernie Sanders made that we just wave a magic wand, get rid of it because there's an element of fairness, unfairness to that. But nor am I saying no to the idea because we need forms of structural debt release almost as a safety valve within our economy. And so we've tried to, in the book to put forward areas of uh, ways of approaching debt relief that have an element of fairness to them. So when you're talking about the U.S. government and world governments, you're not talking about a form of restructuring of their debt. You're actually talking about true forgiveness. Yeah, in the private sector, I'm talking about true forgiveness. It's a, okay. it's a harder nut in government debt. But in the private sector, yeah, I'm, I'm talking about principal reduction or principal elimination 
through some mechanism that's ultimately deemed fair. Interesting. Okay. All right. Okay. So just wrapping this part of the conversation up, just a question on deregulation. Do you think deregulation is part of the solution going forward? Well, we've examined all the financial crises in American history in great detail. Yeah. And we had crises in 1792, 1797, 1819, 1837, 1857, 1873, 1884, 1893, <laughs> They were precipitated by runaway private sector lending. You know, in the mid 1800s, it was massive overlending in the tra in the railroad business. You know, you'd have 25 different companies that had lines into Chicago. Well, you know, that's too many. Right. You don't need that much capacity. So the bonds that were used to finance that go into default, and you have yourself a, a debt crisis in the United States. So I do think there's one thing that you could do to prevent crises. And that is, and, and I make one other point, every time there's rapid debt growth, excessive debt growth, as there was from 2002 to 2007 in the mortgage market, it's because credit policies have been relaxed and usually significantly relaxed. So they're making mortgage loans to folks that have no jobs, no assets, no, in, you know, the famed ninja loans. That's true as far back in time as you can look. Folks just relaxed covenants, got rid of requirements, lowered ratio requirements, and so forth, which means we're making loans that aren't creditworthy. And banks are going to have losses, potentially fail. So, the, you know, the one area that we advocate is at some level, folks need to monitor the aggregate private sector lending. And it gets excessive. And that threshold is very high, by the way. You can have a lot of growth without triggering the the alarm bells, uh, I, I think I think that there's some some action that needs to be taken to prevent the crisis. You mentioned the word crises at least a dozen times, maybe two. And it just seems there's an anchor there every time we have inflation. Do you have an indicator or some sort of algorithm that you follow or look at that helps to predict economic crises and the impact it might have? For, for what I call banking crises, the answer is yes. You know, we, we have a rough rule of thumb, you know, if, if you have growth in private debt to GDP of over 20% for four or five years, that's the warning signal. And that, that equates to about 4% growth in one year. And that's in GDP adjusted debt. When you say and GDP adjusted, given, sorry to interrupt, by adjusted, do you mean you're removing the government spending out of the GDP? It's just private sector debt divided by GDP. Okay. So the GDP increased 10% and private lending increased 10%. That's zero increase in private debt to GDP. So if you have a you have a level of debt incurred that's occurring that where the growth is higher than that, you need to start looking uh, more deeply into the issues. Got it. Interesting. Okay. Last question. This shows about education. You know, that's something we're really big on and I'm a big believer in. And uh, what role do you think education plays in finances and wealth creation? Uh, kind of a teed up question, but I'm going to ask you anyway. Well, I'm a, I'm a huge believer in lifelong learning. And, um, you know, that's, I think, why your show is so terrific. Right. And 
why your show is so valuable to folks. Thank you. You know, folks need to learn and they need to relearn because, you know, most of, most of what I learned when I was 20 and 30 has since become obsolete. <laughs> so you kind of got to stay current. So, you know, I think you guys do a superb job in that, but remaining on top of things is essential. Good stuff. Great. Well, before uh, we give out your contact information, any final thoughts for our audience before we wrap up today? Just deep appreciation for the opportunity. Awesome. Richard, it's been an honor having you on. Share with our listeners where they can find more information about you, your work, and especially your books. And I, again, I've said it twice now, I'm going to highly recommend people pick up a copy of The Case for a Debt Jubilee, as well as The Illustrated History of the United States, which should arrive from Amazon tomorrow. And I'm excited to get my hands on it. So please share all your particulars and contact information. Well, it's, it's very easy. My name is Richard Vague, and the last name is spelled V as in Victor, A-G-U-E. So it's richardvague.com. Beautiful. Well, we'll put all that in the show notes on the website in the transcript and in our newsletter so everybody gets their hands on it. Richard, it's been an honor having you on. Thank you for all your information and good work. Keep up the fight, and uh, I hope to have you on again later this year. Thank you very, very much. Thank you. Well, I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you haven't listened to the last episode I did with Jeff Deist titled Inflation and the Economy, be sure to listen to that. It's an interesting complement to this episode, and it shows or poses some slightly opposing views on the topic of debt and inflation. I think the two go well together and it gives you a lot of food for thought. So be sure to take that one in as well. Remember to subscribe if you haven't done so already. It takes just two seconds and that way you are notified every week of new episodes. And share this with your friends. I mean, why not? If you have like-minded individuals that you like to talk about various topics from investing to economics, markets, tax strategy, and whatnot, this is a great show for them. So uh, do them a favor and share the show with them. That is it for today. Thank you for listening. See you all on our next episode. Are you on track to achieve your financial goals? Income-producing real estate is the most historically proven way to accumulate wealth and has created more financial freedom than any other means. Norada Real Estate provides everything you need to invest in the best turnkey cash flow rental properties. Our simple proven system will help you create real wealth and passive monthly income. Get your free strategy session with our knowledgeable investment counselors at noradarealestate.com. That's N-O-R-A-D-A realestate.com. Nothing on this show should be considered specific personal or professional advice. Please consult an appropriate legal, tax, real estate, or business professional for individualized advice. For distribution or publication rights and media interviews, please contact the host.